morning, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. Today is Thursday, October 28th, and we will be discussing another article from Foreign Affairs entitled America's Crypto Conundrum by Justin Musinich. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Michael Harper. How are you this morning? I'm doing fine. I'm uh, up and at him and ready to go here in Colorado. Nice, nice, nice. Well, I say that uh, we're a little bit later than usual, so shall we just jump straight into the article? Let's go right at the article. America's Crypto Conundrum. This sounds very fascinating. I have not read it. I have read it, so I'm a little bit ahead of the game. Um, Let me just make sure I got it pulled up now. Protecting security without crushing innovation. Yes, that is a quite the conundrum for sure. Um, and we always do a meta-analysis. So Justin Musinich, I think he's just a staff writer, distinguished fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Oh, he previously served as Deputy Secretary Treasury of the of the U- Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Treasury. So he works for the Council of Foreign Relations. So he works for the company that makes foreign affairs, and He's worked in the Treasury Department. So he does have uh, decent credentials to speak upon this. Um, Let me just get back to the beginning here. Okay. And here we are, America's Crypto Conundrum, Protecting Security Without Crushing Innovation by Justin Muzinich. Let's just get right into the article. Sounds good. Here we go. This is the year that digital currencies went mainstream. In the span of just three months last spring, China tested its first ever digital currency on some of its largest cities. Hackers breached a major U.S. oil pipeline and successfully demanded a ransom of more than $4 million in Bitcoin. Cryptocurrency surged to a record combined market capitalization of over $2 trillion. And Jerome Powell, the chair of the U.S. Federal Reserve, warned that cryptocurrencies are highly volatile and may carry potential potential risks to users and the broader financial system. What for many years in Washington, well, for years many in Washington had dismissed as a pet project of techies and West Coast libertarians suddenly became one of the most important, if least understood, policy issues on the agenda of the Biden administration. Digital currencies are driving tremendous innovations that has the potential to make whole economic sectors more efficient, but they also pose various national security and financial threats and could even diminish U.S. influence abroad. One reason that digital currencies are so potentially transformative is that their software design often reflects a particular policy view that government should have less control over money. Early adopters routinely imbued their use of digital currencies with political and philosophical meaning. And even if many people buying Bitcoin today are just looking to make a profit, the values embedded in the code still come with every purchase. Reduced government control of money has potential benefits, such as lowering the cost of payments, but it can also undermine the ability of authorities to respond to economic crises or fight cybercrime and financial crime, among other basic services that citizens across the political spectrum expect. The enormous potential for upside as well as downside has driven the policy debate around digital currencies to extremes. On one side, opponents of digital currencies see them mainly as tools for illicit finance and have called on the government to curb their spread, in some cases going as far as advocating a ban on private sector coins. 
On the other side are evangelists who see digital currencies as revolutionary and have pushed for the private market to determine their fate. But what the United States needs is a public policy framework that takes a balanced approach, preserving the market's ability to innovate without sacrificing the government's capacity to perform essential functions. In other words, Policymakers need both the humility to recognize that markets will be best at separating useful innovation from hype and the confidence to adopt critical safeguards. To that end, the Biden administration should establish guardrails in the areas where these currencies pose the greatest collateral risk, namely in the government's ability to set monetary policy, ensure financial stability, and fight illicit finance. At the same time, the United States should lay the groundwork to launch a digital dollar or bless a private sector solution that ensures the dollar's preeminent role in international payments. This two-track approach would chart a shrewd path between the fruitless extremes of banning digital currencies and allowing the market to operate unhindered. U.S. policymakers should act swiftly. Beijing recently cracked down on the mining of Bitcoin, and China and other countries are forging ahead with sovereign digital currencies. Uncertainty about what the United States will do has added the cloud of regulatory risk that hangs over the industry. The sooner the U.S. takes common sense steps to provide clarity, the sooner innovation will thrive. There is wow. our intro. What, a, what an intro. What a beginning. Uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Okay, th these are my thoughts. He's saying, the future of crypto hinges on how the United States chooses to regulate the crypto markets. So we need to do that now so that we have clarity going forward. Um, and now is good, but right is also good. There's a risk that if you rush to regulate the crypto markets, you won't do it in the right way. And that's what this whole article is about. You see what I'm saying? If you get oh, yeah. legislation passed by the end of the year or by the end of Q1 2022, will it be the right regulation? And the fascinating thing about crypto is that there's all this new wealth created, and a lot of it is not in the hands of people who traditionally donate to campaigns, which are traditional financial sector people. <laughs> Uh, well, he said a lot of things in there that uh, I got to admit it's over my head. I don't understand. It sounds to me, the feeling I get is that uh, this is a brand new beast and people don't understand it that well. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, they don't understand what it is. Second, they don't understand what people can do good and bad with it. And uh, third, they don't know what, what's going to happen in the future. They don't know how it's going to play out because this is a brand new, brand new uh, uh, arena that we're working in. Mm -hmm. And uh, and things and also, I guess, fourth, whatever we do today, things are changing. And, and we don't know what the threats are, or what the possible upside and downside of any decision we make right now. And I guess it's not that we should do something. We should start understanding. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm, just, I'm just throwing this out there. Maybe it's not we should do something definitive right now. Maybe this is where he's going. But what we need to do is think about how we can be agile and control what is happening, understand what's happening, 
and kind of go with the flow to try to protect it to, for, from going too too far negative. I don't know. This is very interesting. Yeah. Now, I think what he's saying is there's an existential threat to U.S. dominance. That's because the dollar is the reserve currency of the world. If cryptocurrencies take that over, we lose a key factor in our control over what happens around the globe. We don't want that to happen. Now, China, they've already gone to a digital yuan. It's just a central bank-issued version of their paper currency. And that has implications. What is that going to grant them? We'll find out later in the article. Now, do we need to do something like that? Maybe, but maybe not the same way they did it. And that's the fascinating thing. There's a million things we could do. What do we choose? And then if we choose, well, we're not going to issue a digital dollar from the Federal Reserve, but we're going to allow third parties to peg crypto coins to the dollar. And as long as they have dollar reserves, they can issue those. Are we choosing winners and losers at that point? And are we having unscrupulous characters be in control of our financial future? Characters like those that run Tether, which we've done an entire episode about. Uh, thinking more on, not thinking about the details, thinking a more general approach and thinking about this is that, uh, again, I get back to this is so brand new that how do we know uh, whatever decision we make now? Whatever decision we make now is based on what we know about our currency and about uh, the, the security of America, uh, but also what we know about the potential of uh, cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. But cryptocurrency is brand new. Well, it's new in the sense that it's like Bitcoin or, or uh, uh, digital currency. Yeah, it's 12 years old. Yeah. It's, it's, that's new. 12 years old is new. You know. Well, let me, let me ask you something, David. I was talking about this the other day, and I go, well, you know, uh, crypto. What's the value of a cryptocurrency? It's or or like a the value of of a American dollar or the yuan or the or the franc or whatever you have the Deutschmark. It's based on the economy of the country, is it not? Uh, I mean, the uh, currency value is not necessarily the economy of a country. Uh, the economy of a country could be strong and their central bank can be printing money hand over fist and they can tank the value of their own currency. Okay. But it's, it's connected to it. It's connected to a country mm-hmm. and, how they, and how they print their money and how do they respect the value of one unit of monetary. It's that country. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? And so uh, my thinking is, is that uh, it's tied into the country. Uh, And uh, years ago, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, uh, in small towns in America, uh, they really didn't have any money. So what they would do is they would have, you know, the doctor would go out and, and, and cure the little old lady. And she says, I'll bake you dinner tomorrow, you know, and, and they, the, what little money they had, they shared. And, uh, uh, you had no money, no money passed hands and people lived. Mm-hmm. 
And so what was that based on? The barter system? The barter system, yeah. And so my thinking is that how is the barter system, a financial system, and then the cryptocurrency system, you know, I, I see how are those different and, and how is the differences such that uh, the cryptocurrency uh, is kind of like in the middle of those, that what what is the value of a cryptocurrency based on? Is it the people using the cryptocurrency? Yeah. Like a barter system? I Just think like so. A barter, like a barter system. And so the, the difference is, is that in a small town in America, back in the 50s, they trust one another. <laughs> but when you have a huge, broad cryptocurrency, you have an arena for people to do harm. I don't know where I'm going with this. It just, uh, I don't understand. I don't understand the details as much. And I don't think anyone really does. And I think uh, what he's saying is, you know, just you got to be shrewd in how you move forward because you don't know how it's going to play out and you don't know what is, what's going to happen when you start putting controls on it. Mm-hmm. The controls may, might help the, uh, the people misuse it. Yeah. I mean, I think that, also, your point is, I think you're wrong. Oh, in the, in the old towns, they trust one another. And that's just good enough for them, even though there's no guarantee that someone will pay you back. If you give the town drunk 50 bucks, he goes and drinks it up. And he's like, well, I trusted him to pay me back, and he didn't. With cryptocurrency, there's it's mandated in code that these transactions will occur at this point in time. Um, so it takes trust between individuals out of the system. And it sort of makes the individual um, trustworthiness unnecessary because the trustworthiness is mediated by code. So instead of saying, well, we all live in the same town, so there's no reason for me not to loan him money or goods. Now it's, well, we're all operating on the same code base and that code base ensures trust. And the code base makes it that you don't need to trust someone to do this transaction. Yeah, but in a barter system, you're trusting each other. And though people do that all the time, people did that in every little town. They 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 didn't pay you back, and everyone knows. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in cryptocurrency, and they trust the code. And can the code be mishandled or misused? Uh, I can't believe I cannot believe that it can't be. I think it can be by the people writing the code, or people understand the code. Yeah, I mean, you could also say. I have this road atlas, Rand McNally, 1967, and I used it to drive all over the country in 1967. Why should I use Google Maps? Because back (laughs) in 1967, my Rand McNally road atlas got me to where I wanted to go. So there's no reason for me to use Google Maps. I bet you Google Maps is wrong, too. It's like, yeah, but it's going to be wrong way less than your 1967 Rand McNally road atlas. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. But that that kind of is what you're saying. Not really. I'm saying the road atlas from 1967, it's not always right, but I understand that, you know, this is 1968 now. They may have done something and it may be different. So I understand that. But with with the Rand Mc, with, with today, with my Google Maps, I also understand that that may not be right. Mm-hmm. But the younger people says, oh, this is the way it is. 
that this is truth. That this is there's nothing in error here because it's online. I'm believing it. This is, no, no, there could be it could be wrong there too. Uh, so, I what I'm saying is is that uh, uh, the barter system worked, and way back when in small countries, when the, the reason it worked and it worked and it didn't work, uh, it's not that much different than than trusting code and trust in cryptocurrency well that trust went to the to the government to support money now when you go to cryptocurrency you're trusting something else uh, or your something else is, is undermining is is, un, is supporting it and so what I'm saying is that, that all of a sudden you have a different kind of mentality that you have to think about that uh, it's not going to solve everything mm-hmm. there's always going to be something in there they got to be careful of and it, it's going back to a system that's moving yourself away from the government. Yeah. Now, I will also say, I mean, before we move on, because we should probably get back to the article, you know, there's a worry that cryptocurrency will be facilitate illicit finance, that it'll be a facilitator of it. Now, I think that it must be, it must be stated that prior to cryptocurrency, 100% of illicit finance that ever happened in the history of the world happened with fiat currency issued by governments. Um, So you could say there's a possibility you could use this new currency to commit financial crimes. Whereas throughout the history of the world until 2009, 2008, when Bitcoin was invented, financial crimes were committed solely with dollars and yen and yuan and pesos and real. And And it's like, did we ever say we need to abandon the dollar, because you can use that to commit financial crimes. Yeah. So, but in the same same vein, we don't want to abandon cryptocurrency, mm-hmm. but we want to understand how to use it properly. Yeah. And if we can get the level of uh, cryptocurrency financial crimes down to one half of one percent of crimes that you could commit with a briefcase full of cash. And then is it okay or fifty percent okay? I mean, what what are we? What is our level of tolerance for graft? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, and I'm just saying, what's the difference between the dollar and cryptocurrency? What's the difference, and are we used to something moving away from the dollar as a basis of our barter? Mm-hmm. Are we used to that? Have we done it before? What problems have we seen? How can we make it better? Uh, it's just understanding what's happening. Uh, with with this, and I think, and it's brand new technology, uh, but we're still have centuries old bartering between each other. Mm-hmm. The money, uh, uh, the dollar, and the money currency, the government based currency, has made that growth easy and stabilize and everything. But also, so can cryptocurrency. But there's new challenges. To this how do you how do you stabilize it how do you manage it mm-hmm. i think I that find it, it's 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 beyond my my knowledge and my ability to understand this that well because i'm not a financial person yeah and i think and that it's, it's a little bit over my head maybe there are new challenges or maybe the challenge is we have agencies set up to regulate currencies but they're not set up to regulate cryptocurrencies so we're asking ourselves how you know this guy, he's the greatest horseman in the kingdom. 
So we need to take this horseman and have him service our fleet of automobiles and trucks. Because for years, he's tended to the horses. And he'll use everything he's learned about horses to teach a group of people to tend to the automobiles that we've just purchased. That's, that's sort of what we're looking at here. <laughs> that's a very good analogy. The automobiles are not horses. Mm-hmm. And the horsemen are the Federal Reserve. Um, although they still have a fair amount of power, you know. Uh, shall we continue with the article? Okay. Do you want to read? Okay. Uh, cheaper, faster, riskier. Digital currencies come in public and private sector variants. Sovereign digital currencies, such as China's digital yuan, are government-issued and give holders a direct claim on the central bank. Like transactions with normal currencies, Transactions with sovereign digital currencies are validated by a central bank. In other words, these oops, did it go right? Uh, these currencies are just digital extensions of regular currencies, except they can make central banks look more like real retail banks. Depending on their design, sovereign digital currencies can even enable ordinary depositors to have accounts directly with central banks and could potentially increase rather than decrease government control of money. Private sector digital currencies, by contrast, generally rely on decentralized blockchain technology to settle accounts between users. These currencies include cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin and Ether, which fluctuate in value relative to the US dollar, and a subset of cryptocurrencies called stablecoins, such as USD coin, commonly known as USDC, and Facebook's DM, uh, which are pegged to a fiat currency and designed not to fluctuate value. The blockchain technology that undergirds these currencies come in a number of variations, but it generally allows a community of users to validate transactions on a ledger instead of relying on a central authority, such as the U.S. Federal Reserve. For instance, a certain number of coin holders might have to validate a transaction before coins can move from one user to another. Or coin holders might have to confirm a cryptographic key. Regardless of the exact process, network users perform the formally centralized job of a central bank. One consequence of moving transactions outside the banking system is that transaction fees may be lower. Since 2018, sending Bitcoin from one digital wallet to another has cost an average of about $4. For transactions of a similar speed, the largest American bank charge consumers far more, roughly $28, for a domestic wire transfer. Slower options, such as using the Federal Reserve's bank's automatic clearinghouse, cost less. And about $40 for an international transfer. But decentralized systems are not inherently cheaper than centralized ones. A centralized ledger can be run as, a, uh, as efficiently as a decentralized one. One reason that sending Bitcoin is cheaper than sending dollars is that Bitcoin avoids much of the infrastructure and associated fees of the legacy centralized banking system. Uh, some of the infrastructure, such as anti-money laundering systems, serves a vital function. To a certain degree, therefore, the lower cost of transferring Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies reflects lower regulatory and compliance costs that may, that may not last. But other costs associated with the legacy payment system stem um, 
from any efficiencies that could be eliminated through competition. If the challenge posed by cryptocurrencies forces the legacy payment system to cut costs, that will clearly be good for the United States as a whole. In addition to offering lower fees, cryptocurrencies are giving rise to a new generation of decentralized business models. For instance, blockchain enables file storage businesses allow, uh, allow anyone who joins a network to rent spare hard drive capacity directly to others on the network instead of relying on Dropbox or Amazon web services in the, in the middle. Other businesses allowing the sharing and monetization of social media content without Facebook or Instagram as an intermediary. And in what is known as decentralized finance, the blockchain can facilitate lending without a bank. Lots of business models might be reimagined with a community of users managing a network rather than a central bank. How successful emerging technologies will be at replacing legacy systems is always difficult to predict, but the market will do a much better job of determining this than the government. Decentralization is not, however, just another example of a new technology upending entrenched businesses, as some cryptocurrency evangelists argue. True, companies threatened by blockchain technology will have to adapt. But cryptocurrencies don't just promise to displace private sector incumbents. They can undermine some essential government functions valued on both sides of the aisle. And therein lies the risk that a limited public policy framework should address. And then, of course, the title of the next section is Who Controls the Money Supply? And that's the risk that mm-hmm. um, is an existential threat, I think, to the United States where the reserve currency of the world is dollars. If we upset that specific fact, a lot of our leverage in the world goes away. And he'll get into what that means. This was an interesting section to me because it reminds me of when I was in college many years ago. I went to college in a hippie town, Boulder, Colorado. And these hippies, they would drive around in cars they say, this car runs on 100% vegetable oil. And it's like, yeah, man, we just go around to the restaurants and get the vegetable oil or whatever. And there was this thing. And even then, back in 2001, 2002, I thought to myself, well, yeah, you can do that. But not everyone can do that. Do you see what I mean? If everyone in the world started going around to restaurants and asking them for vegetable oil, you'd have about five cars in the town that could run on vegetable oil. And then ninety, like the other... 99% of people wouldn't have any fuel to run their cars. It's a finite supply. Um, it's sort of the same, a little bit different with cryptocurrencies, where existing regulation, some of it is cumbersome. The legacy banking system, some of it, there's just middlemen there grabbing a dollar from you every time you try to do anything. But other, like the anti-money laundering regulations, they build in costs to the system that will have to be built into a cryptocurrency system if you want to use that as the dominant means of exchange. And make no mistake, these people that have been taking a dollar from you every time you send money, they have a lot of money. And they're going to fight to make it so that this new way of sending money gets regulated against. That's, that's my opinion. Because they're experts in regulations. Yes. They've, they've arranged the regulations so that they can be in a position to sit in the middle of the stream and take a dollar from wherever it comes and put it into their pocket 
because they understand the regulations. They understand the financial regulations. And why do you think they understand the financial regulations? They were probably right there lobbying the people who wrote those financial regulations to put them in a position to take a dollar from you every time you wanted to send $10 to someone else. That's right. So what's your thoughts on that last section? Oh, I thought it was fascinating. I, I, it's all fascinating to me. Again, I want to say it's a little bit over my head. I'm not that much of a financial person, but I kind of get the gist of it is that, yeah, there's, there's some risks in here. There's some challenges. There's some benefits and there's some challenges. Uh, I just don't understand it as much as, as I should. And actually, it's kind of humbling. I, I said, I really should understand this more. This is, this is my country. This is, this is the world. This is uh, extremely, extremely important, extremely valuable. And I think what he's talking about is fairly detailed and, and he's bringing up some very good points. But I think that uh, everyone should have some understanding on the financial system because it's so critical to our lives mm -hmm. now, in the country. I think the difference between you and an entrepreneur in this area is that you probably understand cryptocurrency with how much we've talked about it. I probably understand it. Uh, as much, if not more, of how it works than people that have made tens of millions of dollars. People don't ask, how does this work? How does this fit into the system? What's the future of it? People ask, how can I make money off of this? And that's the difference between an entrepreneur in this area and someone like you or I who says, well, we how does the current system work? How will adding this affect the balance of regulatory policies that shape the future of finance in America? An entrepreneur doesn't care about that. They say, what can I do to make money off of this? That's that's the question they ask. And, I mean, more power to them, right? <laughs> well, it's part of our system. But I think you're right. I think what we're asking is, how does this work? But why do we want to know how it works? To make sure that we balance the good and bad and, 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 and make sure we, we control it in the sense that it doesn't go negative on us. We don't we don't get hurt. We don't react to the negative aspects of it after it's happened. Mm -hmm. We want to be proactive to make sure we move in the right direction to benefit all Americans and, and all citizens of the of, of the world that's going to be impacted by uh, either domestic crypt, uh, a blockchain cryptocurrency or even international. Uh, I think I think we have much more altruistic view of, of how we approach things. Uh, and actually, you and I talk about that all the time, uh, about what's the what's the bigger view? And I, you're right. A lot of times the entrepreneurs and business people and political people and on and on, they look at a very focal, very focused uh, uh, subset of what needs to be achieved to benefit them. Mm -hmm. And that's humans. That is humans. And people will say, that's being smart. It's too broad to understand it all. But you know what you can't understand? How it benefits you. And some will say, that's the smart way to look at things. But let's should we get you, back to the article? You, you can understand that because you can see your money coffers growing. Mm -hmm. You can see, I did it. Okay, Because there's, a, there's a, a physical measure. You have more money now than you did before. Yeah. And it's like my buddy that's like, yeah, I think that his parents thought I was a bad influence, but now I'm a good person. I have a good job. It's like there's a difference between being a good person and having a good job. But for some people, that's the only validation they need. That's right. Um, 
continue? Who, Shall controls, we who controls the money, David? Who controls the money supply? One of the biggest risks posed by cryptocurrencies is that they could weaken the U.S. Federal Reserve's ability to set monetary policy. Although such a scenario is unlikely, a cryptocurrency such as Bitcoin could conceivably become a common enough medium of exchange that it puts a meaningful portion of the money supply beyond the Fed's control. In addition, although cryptocurrencies usually have predetermined formulas for coin growth or limits on the total number of coins, most allow a certain group of decision makers, such as a majority of coin holders, to alter these protocols. As a result, coin holders, rather than central bankers, could end up deciding to increase or decrease the amount of digital currency in circulation. So far, this is a theoretical concern. Despite being labeled currencies, Bitcoin and its cryptocurrency brethren are mostly held as investment assets in the United States. Goods and services are not priced in Bitcoin, so most holders are using it as a substitute for assets such as gold or equities, sometimes as a hedge against inflation. One reason Bitcoin has not become a medium of exchange is that the Internal Revenue Service has said that any transaction involving digital currency is taxable realization is a taxable realization event, meaning the users need to pay tax on any gain in the value of Bitcoin between when they bought it and when they used it to purchase something. In other words, for tax purposes, the Bitcoin is treated like stock, which makes it impractical to use as currency. But even if the IRS were to change its view, Bitcoin and similar cryptocurrencies would not be widely used as a medium of exchange for a more fundamental reason, their price volatility relative to the dollar. The price of Bitcoin has varied widely in just the last year, from a low of less than 15000 to a high of over 60000 per coin. As a result, anyone pricing goods and services in Bitcoin would either have to accept this volatility risk or perpetually change their prices to maintain purchasing power in dollars. Not all digital currencies face the same obstacles to widespread use, however. Unlike Bitcoin and similar cryptocurrencies, stablecoins such as Diem are for the most part neither volatile nor taxable at the time of use. They are stable, as their name suggests, because they are tied to the value of a fiat currency. For example, always being worth $1. For this reason, there are no gains to be taxed when stablecoins are used in transactions, nor is there a price risk for merchants who denominate their goods and services in a stablecoin. Over the last year, the total value of stablecoins has grown from about $10 billion to over $100 billion, and the fact that large platforms such as Facebook are behind these currencies makes them even more likely to achieve widespread use as a medium of exchange. This would not necessarily pose a risk to the Fed's ability to set monetary policy, as long as stablecoin platforms deposit a fixed dollar amount in a reserve account for every stablecoin that is in circulation. But if a stablecoin were to achieve widespread use and then change its reserve requirement from, say, $1 per coin to $0.10, cents, the money supply could increase meaningfully. Such a decision would be made not by the Fed, but by whatever group was permitted to alter the stablecoin's protocol, a private governing association or some proportion of coin holders, for example. Not only would that take important monetary policy decisions out of the hands of the government, but it could also potentially allow foreign powers to gain influence over the U.S. money supply. For instance, by acquiring a majority of that particular stablecoin. Such possibilities remain remote, but in a world where it is difficult to predict how technology will develop, policymakers should take proactive measures to prevent private sector digital currencies from eroding the Fed's control over monetary policy. 
In particular, they should step up the enforcement of tax rules, including those requiring the payment of capital gains tax on cryptocurrency transactions, so that non-stable coins remain more attractive as an asset than as a medium of exchange. Congress's effort to include properly tailored cryptocurrency tax reporting language in recent legislation is a good step in this direction. Policymakers should also require that stablecoins always maintain a fixed reserve ratio so that they will not impede the Fed's ability to set monetary policy, even if they achieve widespread use. Okay, I get it. He's given, he's, yeah. Uh, well, actually, it's, again, from my uh, layman's view, it looks sounds fairly reasonable. That that section sounded perfectly reasonable, although the thing is, why does the dollar get to be worth a dollar? Let's say Bitcoin becomes worth, levels out at $65,000, and the Bitcoin's worth $65,000. And it achieves parity with the dollar, and then it, it sort of irons out its volatility. It finds its price range, you know, after all the hype cycles end. Why shouldn't it be used as a means of exchange at that period? And what's the difference between that and the dollar then? Yeah. It sounds like, uh, I don't know, the, the impression, again, there again, I'm not, I'm not an expert in this area at all, but the impression I get is that he's saying or, or what, not what he's saying. What he's saying, what I look in a bigger picture, is that whatever happens, this thing is so volatile, it's so new, but you want to have safeguards on it. And maybe in the future, you take some stable coins and you have, you have a, a policy, government policy, to stabilize them even more to where they can be useful to the, to the government and the nation. And you're your cryptocurrency begins to look more and more like currency mm -hmm. <laughs> because you need those safeguards. It, it, there's some benefits to it. Uh, it's, I get the feeling that he, that that's kind of the direction that, well, that's the implications undermining what he's saying. And I'm sure he's saying a lot more than that. Yeah. But it's, kind of like it's going to converge to what we have now. I don't that, know. I, I think you're right. That's exactly what he's saying. We need to, Make sure that Bitcoin and Ether are like stocks and we regulate them like stocks. You pay capital gains tax, uh, cashing them out into dollars is a realized event. So if you bought for 2000 and you, if you bought one Ether for 2000 and you sold it for 3000 you're paying capital gains on that extra $1,000. That's, that's what he wants. And then he wants dm he brings up dm a million times that's facebook's cryptocurrency he wants companies like facebook to work with u.s regulators to hold a billion dollars in cash reserves and then issue one billion dm coins and then people can use that as a medium of exchange online but facebook will do the tracking and when people cash out their 500 dm coins they pay taxes on you know any realized gain that they made from that do you see what i'm saying yeah. So he basically wants, I don't know if he wants this, he's saying, I can imagine a world where decentralized, unregulated markets like Ether and Bitcoin are like stocks. And you pay capital gains on any, uh, any time you cash out. And then we have big companies like Facebook. How could Facebook possibly be evil? Uh, we have big companies 
serve as de facto. Um, we'll give you a Facebook buck if you give us a dollar. And then you could spend it online. And the, they don't see any problem with that. Because I think that they would... It's easier for them to work with the Facebook because they've been working with Facebook than to work with the people behind Tether. Or do you see what I'm saying? So I think that it's easier for the Fed or the U.S. regulators to imagine regulating these big companies as arbiters of stable coins more than some sort of decentralized system. As it exists now. But what would keep a Facebook, which is a private private entity or public entity, but private, uh, a corporation, what would keep someone with the power of Facebook uh, be be replaced by another type of uh, social media platform that's not controlled by someone in America, but someone in another country. Mm-hmm. So when you go down the path of uh, giving more power uh, away from the government, well, then you have to regulate who has that power. Somehow you have to pay attention to who has that power. Is it a Facebook? Is it a TikTok? Uh, what is it if they're going to start doing that? So how do you regulate that between different types of uh, platforms and different types of players? Mm-hmm. And like it's a slippery slope. It is a slippery slope, but I think what you said first was the most accurate thing. They are looking for convergence. How do we make this new world look like the world that we live in? How do we set the rules so that what we know is what becomes of the world? So that the unknown becomes the known. How do we massage regulations so that what crypto becomes is basically just a digital version of what we have now? And the thing is, that may not be... If you were if you were to travel back to 1997, 19, let's say before the 1996 Telecommunications Act, 95, and you say, we need a regulation to make sure that the internet is just like our public libraries. And we want you, when you log on to Prodigy or AOL or CompuServe, what you get is a digital version of libraries. And if we can achieve that, bam, that's what we want. And you don't know where the internet's going to go, what it'll offer. I mean, how crazy it'll become, but it's certainly not a library. Right. Um, it can be used as a library, but that's not what it is. Yes. Crypto, cryptocurrency can be used as currency, but there may be a lot more to it than just that. Mm-hmm. It can be used as currency. It can be used as a stock, sort of like an asset class. It can be used as an autonomous organization. It can be used as a contracting mechanism. And it can be used as those things when 12 years ago it was just a currency. Well, 12 years from now, will there be 10 new other things it could be used for? I mean, have we not found its killer use case yet? Well, you have the dollar which is regulated by one entity, the United States government, let's say. We have a cryptocurrency that's regulated by multiple players. Mm-hmm. That's a whole different ballgame, too. So even though you, you're trying to converge to something you control, 
you're not controlling the dollar, you're controlling companies mm-hmm. who, who control the, the exchange, uh, the, the medium of exchange. That's a different kind of control. You don't have that much control over, you don't have the same kind of control. When you control a dollar, you, you do it and it happens. When you control companies, you try to have regulations and they, they will violate those things and uh, maybe uh, maybe intentionally, unintentionally, but it's a different kind of control. Mm-hmm. And it's, and uh, I guess I understand uh, the controls that have to be there, but then you have to think broader than just controlling the actions of them. You have to control them or the... the uh, the environment, the, the social structure of how they work within an economy. It's it's a different ballgame. Yeah. This is um, very interesting. Um, shall we continue with the article? Okay. I'll let you read. I'm going to run and grab a cup of coffee because I read this last night. Is that okay? Okay. And I'll be back before you finish the section. Okay. Unclear rules, uncertain authorities. In addition to complicating monetary policy, cryptocurrencies could create risks within the financial system, as Powell warned earlier this year. They trade on secondary markets, both over-the-counter and through exchanges that are broadly accessible to the public, but the regulatory regime around them is unclear. One source of confusion is whether cryptocurrencies are securities which fall under the jurisdiction of the Security Exchange Commission, the SEC, or commodities, which are a purview of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, CFTC. Lawyers differ on this question, and there is considerable uncertainty within the industry over which regulatory regime, if any, applies to which currency. A $2 trillion market needs more clarity than this. Even if a cryptocurrency were to fall clearly in the CFTC's jurisdiction, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, a second set of ambiguities would remain. The CFTC can regulate futures markets for cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, but has more limited powers, just the ability to to punish fraud and manipulation when it comes to cash markets. The same exchange might facilitate trading in both futures and cash markets for Bitcoin, for instance, but the CFTC would have regulatory authority only over the former. Absent federal regulatory authority, cash markets uh, could be subject to different regulatory regulations in all 50 states, which would be both confusing to consumers and bad for American competitiveness. Entrepreneurs will do less business in the United States if they have to comply with 50 different legal regimes there, but only a single regime in other countries. Federal regulators may be able to find creative ways to assert jurisdiction, depending on the nuances of individual digital currencies. But since cash markets for digital currencies can slide through a gap in regulatory coverage between the SEC and CFTC, Congress needs to ensure that someone has clear regulatory authority. Congress need not be heavy-handed. Setting price controls to stop speculation is not the government's job, but Congress should act quickly. Beyond jurisdictional questions, cryptocurrencies also raise financial stability concerns. For example, few rules govern reserve or liquidity management for stablecoins. As a result, coin holders may have trouble exchanging their coin for dollars, and they may assume more risk than they realize. 
The popular stablecoin Tether, for instance, initially claimed that its coins were backed by dollars, but later disclosed that it had divested its reserve reserves in a variety of risky assets to the surprise of many coin holders. As long as these currencies are not widely held, such risks will be borne solely by individual coin holders. But if the collateral underlying a systematically important stablecoin were to be impaired, a run on the currency could occur and affect the stability of multiple markets, a scenario that becomes more likely when the economy is already experiencing difficulty. These are solvable problems that policymakers are discussing and existing regulatory frameworks, such as the one that governs money markets, could be partially adopted for cryptocurrencies. But so far, Washington has taken few steps in this direction. There we the go. Section, yeah, very, see, that's kind of what we were saying before. Yeah, so like uh, especially the last one, you know, fra existing frameworks such as the one that governs money market can be adopted for cryptocurrencies. That's true, except for they're transnational, right? Yeah, so right. It, can, it can be adopted here, but when we did our Tether episode, we found out that's a Cayman Island corporation. And they state, yes, we have this money in reserve. And then we found out, oh, well, we added a billion dollars because we hold 20% of the stock of our sister company. And we've raised the value of that company by $5 billion in our heads because it's private. And so we've added a billion Tether to the system because there's a billion more dollars in our reserves. And it's like, that doesn't seem right. And yet, like, like the author is saying, Musinich, um, liquidity management, as a result, coin holders may have trouble exchanging their coins for dollars, and they may assume more risk than they realize. Um, a lot For a lot of people, Tether or US dollar coin or something like that is their pathway to purchasing and realizing gains on the uh, cryptocurrencies that they purchase. And if they can't, if there's no liquidity pathway to turn their Bitcoin into 60,000 US dollars, if you can't turn it into 60,000 Tether and then into US dollars because it's a stable coin, um, you have to wait and you may say, well, I want to get it out. Well, the liquidity of the underlying stable coin that you use as a pathway to exchanging dollars into this cryptocurrency has been compromised. And as a result, there's a run on getting your money out. And as a result, the value has plummeted. And as a result, by the time you finally can get it out, it's it's a fraction of what it was worth. It's, uh, it's fascinating. And then, of course, the beginning of the section talking about do you regulate it with the Securities and Exchange Commissions or do you regulate it as a commodity? And the important point that he makes is futures. You can regulate commodities futures, but there's no mechanism in place to regulate commodities um, just like strike price of commodities in real time. You know what I mean? So the system we have out to regulate commodities could work for cryptocurrency, but only in a futures market, not in a real-time market. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand that that much. Mm -hmm. but, but it's fascinating, it's, though. I, I understand the concept, 
I don't understand the details. It's really fascinating. Yeah, we are in a, uh, yeah, again, we're in a, a new, something new that has to be considered. And yeah. It's a good article. It's a timely article. Again, a great article in Foreign Affairs. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, the master of horses and the master of treasure. Um, they're trying to regulate a fleet of automobiles and a fleet of banks. <laughs> you know, uh, we have old systems trying to, and we're trying to shoehorn new systems into old ones. But I think it's going to require a little bit of creativity how we handle this regulatory challenge. And there's always the risk of illicit finance. Illicit finance, that's right. Shall we get into it? Yeah. Perhaps the most immediate risk posed by cryptocurrency stems from the anonymity they allow. The United States does not permit large numbers of dollars to move both anonymously and electronically. It requires that banks and money transfer businesses such as Western Union collect identifying information and perform some due diligence for high-risk transactions. Suspicious transfers and those over $10,000 must be reported to the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, the Bureau of the U.S. Department of the Treasury devoted to fighting illicit finance. These regulations haven't put financial criminals out of business, but they have created many obstacles for them. Suitcases of cash are cumbersome and risky, and electronic payments are difficult to anonymize. Unlike bank accounts, most digital currency ledgers do not require any identifying information beyond a cryptographic key. This makes illicit activity much easier. Even though anonymous flows can be tracked on a blockchain ledger that occasionally facilitates recovery from criminals, the majority of digital currency transactions, roughly between 60 and 99 percent, depending on how one measures, are for legal purposes. But the appeal of cryptocurrencies for criminals is obvious. Virtually all ransomware attacks, including the one earlier this year on a U.S. oil pipeline, demand payment in digital currency, and money launderers, terrorists, drug traffickers, and tax evaders also make use of the technology. I will also say, and this is me editorializing, and I said this at the beginning, money launderers, terrorists, drug traffickers, and tax evaders have also in the history of mankind, always made use of fiat currency. They were able to do these crimes with dollars and with pesos and with real and with yen um, and with euros. Now, the fact that they're moving this into the digital realm doesn't mean that the digital realm is the problem. Do you see what I'm saying? So fiat currency has always been... So it's like saying, well, you know, there would be no terrorists, drug traffickers, money launderers, or tax evaders if we didn't have cryptocurrency. It's like, yes, there would, because we had them before. Um, and the fact that they exist before and they continue to exist today sort of is evidence of the fact that regulations currently in place don't even protect the regular money supply. Because people can perpetrate these crimes before cryptocurrencies ever existed. That's my editorialization. Continuing on, U.S. banking laws allow the government to require identifying information for some digital currency accounts, but only at financial institutions, such as the currency exchange platform 
Coinbase that are already taking steps to be good corporate citizens. The government has less clear authority to require the identification of users who hold their currency directly on a thumb drive, for instance, or in some form of other unhosted digital wallet. Some private companies are developing technology that would help identify the users of anonymous accounts, but as long as banking laws permit anonymity, there is only so much they can do. Tracing digital currency transactions across countries and through previously unused, unhosted wallets is extremely difficult. Congress needs to pass legislation to limit the harmful effects of anonymity, in particular by barring large amounts of anonymous transfers of cryptocurrency that would be illegal within the banking system. Anonymity isn't all bad, however, and policymakers could preserve it under certain circumstances. For instance, in authoritarian countries, ID verification would make it easier for governments to track their opponents and potentially seize their assets. Policymakers must therefore balance the interest of promoting freedom abroad against the need to secure ensure security at home. I read that as policymakers must allow our enemies not to see what their people are doing, but we must be able to see what our people are doing. That's, uh, I think you're muted. You're muted. But who's our friends and who's our enemies? You yes. have to define that. You but have to do, define that. Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. We don't absolutely. want our enemies to know what people are doing with crypto, but we want to know exactly what everyone here is doing with crypto. That's kind of what I'm hearing out of this argument, right? That's right. You, um, have, to define, you have to define friends and enemies. Yeah. That's, um, not, that's not good. No. Uh, Policymaker uh, must therefore balance the interest of freedom abroad against the need to ensure security at home. One way to do this would be to forego ID requirements for digital currency transactions under $10,000. Such an exception would allow most families to meaningfully protect their assets. The median savings of a U.S. family is under $10,000, and it is far less for families in most autocratic countries. While making it much more difficult to buy expensive weapons with digital currency or demand six- and seven-figure ransoms, such an exception could also allow anonymity for smaller day-to-day -day transactions consistent with the use of cash. This is my question. Is this going to be baked in? to the Bitcoin and Ether protocols? Is this going to be baked into the Litecoin protocols or the Dogecoin protocols? Is this going to be mandated in code or is this going to be mandated by the laws of the country and not validated by the code of these blockchains? Yeah, and what's the, what's the downside of this? Now, what type of negative things could happen if you did something like this? Mm -hmm. And what, what's the enforceability of a multinational blockchain how do you apply these rules yeah you'll just have you'll just have a big company someone who has millions and millions of dollars will have thousands and thousands of accounts mm -hmm. they'll get they'll get around it yeah corporate personhood one obstacle to limiting anonymity anonymity is the lack of a centralized authority to oversee id verification so he sort of um, by their very nature, decentralized digital currencies resist this type of oversight, but creative thinking can likely overcome this challenge. For instance, digital currency exchanges or other private companies could maintain lists of wallets whose users have been verified, and the programs running these currencies could automatically check users against such a list. 
Policymakers should maintain a degree of humility, however, and not be too prescriptive about how to regulate a fast-evolving industry. If policymakers require ID verification, the market will find solutions that are compatible with decentralization and that minimize disruption. Policymakers will also have to think creatively about enforcement. Requiring ID verification could end up driving some digital currency users to so-called anonymity-enhanced coins or to offshore exchanges and wallets beyond U.S. jurisdiction. Anonymity-enhanced coins, such as Monero, are more difficult to track since in addition to not requiring ID verification, they obscure other transaction details, including amounts and wallet addresses. Because their brands are so closely tied to anonymity, these coins might be less likely to comply with ID verification rules and therefore more likely to attract illicit users. That's what I'm saying. Is every coin going to be on board? Yet, such an outcome would not necessarily be all bad because it would give authorities tracking illicit finance a place to focus their efforts. The overwhelming majority of digital currency users are not doing anything illegal, and many would probably accept ID requirements similar to those needed for cash deposits or stocks, as evidenced by the broad use of regulated platforms such as Coinbase. Users who balk at these requirements and shift their transactions to anonymity-enhanced coins will have signaled something useful to law enforcement. Yeah, if you don't have anything to hide, why don't you let me search your car? It's like, oh, because I have Fourth Amendment right against search and seizure. Sounds like you got something to hide. I'm going to search your car. It's like, that doesn't, I don't know, that doesn't seem, I'm against this. Continuing last paragraph. The spread of (laughs) offshore digital currencies is a problem that G7 and G20 could tackle through the kind of coordination they already carry out on other financial issues. In fact, digital currencies are already a topic of discussion when these multilateral group works meet. And a number of countries have signaled a willingness to crack down on the use of digital currencies for illicit activity. The United States should actively engage in shaping these discussions and push other countries to adopt regulations similar to those that it adopts at home in order to prevent criminals from forum shopping. Okay, I have a question about this, though. When the G5, G7, and G20 meet, the G7 is Germany, France... Um, America, Canada, all those countries have a central bank. And when all those countries decide on financial issues, they're deciding on financial issues in countries where they control the monetary supply. The problem is when they decide on something, when they decide to take regulatory action, they're taking regulatory action over something that they don't have direct control over. (laughs) Do you see what I mean? Yes, I do. It's like if you're Facebook and you say, we need a meeting with Apple and Amazon to talk about what to do with Google. You know, the the cryptocurrency exists outside of those three companies, even though those, th- those three companies are large. What's, what's your impression of this last section? Uh, it's... It's to me. It's I. I agree with you. There's a lot of lot of things that are all one sided here. Like it would be nice if this. It would be nice if we could do this. We could do. This. It's from one perspective. I mean, who are the good players and who are the bad players? You're talking about good people. You the, the good people and the bad people. Mm-hmm. Well, the good people. The bad people are bad to the good people. The good people are bad to the bad people. Yeah. I mean, who who's to, to define that? 
in China, Americans are bad. And in, 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 in the United States, we have people who hate the, the Chinese. So you got to be careful. got to be really careful with giving authority. If you're in a place where you can define good players and bad players, you can't do that. You got to you got to say we want to protect uh, what's happening here from a from a perfectly different standpoint uh, that that is less uh, defining of what's good and bad. And I don't see that in here at all. Yeah. I also don't like. Well, if someone uses Monero, they're probably a criminal. Yeah, that yeah, that doesn't make sense either. Um, what we need is for. The U.S. government to say, well, if you're in the Philippines and you're a journalist who's being hunted by Rodrigo Duterte for exposing the brutality of his regime and you're getting help via Monero, well, at least he knows where to look because you're using Monero. And you know what I mean? Like to, And it's like you might not be running guns or laundering money. You might be trying to do valuable work that the government is against. But the thing is, if you're against the government, you're a bad guy. <laughs> That's sort of the, the implication he draws. Um, and, and I mean, it's, it's easy for you or I to point to, what if you're doing work in Russia against the Putin regime and you want some degree of anonymity? It's more difficult for us to say, what if you're doing work in America? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's easy to point to other countries and say, well, you could be working against the government there and be doing something good. It's more difficult to say it when it's your own country. But I think that some on some level, anonymity, um, it's not de facto wrongdoing, wanting anonymity. Those are two separate things. Wanting to keep your financial transactions private is not the same as being a bad guy. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Well, I, get, I don't know. Again, this is beyond my expertise, but the feeling I get is when you start identifying people and know, knowing information about what people are doing with an ID and where their money is and how much they have, that knowledge, that, that, that ability to track people uh, is just opening the door for people to be used mm-hmm. and to be and to be manipulated, and an, an, anonymity in certain areas I think is essential uh, for people uh, to be uh, a, an asset uh, of a company, uh, asset of a country. I mean, mm-hmm. I, th- I think uh, we have our bill of rights here, and I think there's a good reason for that. That you do have rights, uh, and so if you take your rights away from people. There's power in the people. The people really are the power of a country. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not the government, it's the people. And the monetary system can undermine or support or enhance uh, how people work with one another. But if you're using the idea to control the money, to control the people, it's not the money. It's the people that has the power. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think it's, I just get a feeling that that's not the right way to approach things. Yeah, I also get this feeling, and this is completely off the topic, but I want to I want to mention it. You have Apple Pay, you have Google Pay, you have Samsung Pay, and but let's just start with Apple Pay and Google Pay. Um, 
they're using traditional payment mechanisms, you know, the credit card system to validate your transactions. And Google's just a guarantor of that. And on your phone, you could buy anything with Google Pay or Apple Pay. And knowing exactly what your spending habits are is a huge indicator to them of your future purchasing uh, prospects. I mean, I think that's why Facebook wants a digital cryptocurrency. If they can see where you're spending, that's an extra piece of data that they know about you. And if they can see it without any intermediaries, that's an extra piece of data that they know about you. I think one way to keep um, a third party like Apple or Google or Facebook from knowing about your purchasing habits is to have a wallet full of cash and to go to a store and buy something in cash. That's like an anonymous purchase. If you're using Apple Pay to buy some Pilates workout gear, Apple will know that you're into Pilates workout gear. It's, I mean, it don't, uh, do you see what I'm saying? So in a world of digital currency, as we move towards maybe, you know, large corporation controlled stable coins, I think it really favors these large corporations to know even more about you than they already do. It's not just like that you searched something. They know exactly how much you have in your account. They know what your purchasing power is. They may not recommend the Peloton because the Peloton's too expensive for you. You don't make enough money. And they know that because they know how much money you have. They may recommend some less expensive thing because uh, they know that you'll buy it. They may start budgeting for you uh, <laughs> because they don't they don't produce a Peloton. So they want you to buy the less expensive Peloton so that you spend more money on things that they produce. It's, I don't know. I, I just see this, this world in the future where things could be, I mean, it's already going that way. They do that now. But what I, what I am afraid of is they know, uh, that, that goes much further though. Mm -hmm. I think the danger of that is that they know how you behave. Uh, and so why do you buy one thing versus another? Is it the money? Is it the use of it? And who else buys that? And what other, what other influences do the people who have the same purchasing uh, behavior you have, what has influenced them? And so therefore, can we influence your buying behavior? If you, enter, if you can influence buying behavior, you can influence the behavior of something that's acceptable or unacceptable, Beyond just purchasing, yeah, uh, branding uh, uh, something that's a value, and when you have value systems, then you can go into a person's thought process. And if you go into the person's thought process, you know it's valuable to them on how they vote. If you know how they vote, you can have them to, to believe things that may be real or unreal. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to have conspiracy issues. And so you can take a person, and if you look at the, if you look at the we're getting off track here, but if we get a look at the conspiracies, we've seen this in this podcast that these people are not dumb; they're smart. Mm -hmm. They're not like being led because they're ignorant. They're being led because they've been they've been uh, uh, they believe in a certain way, and whether it's whether it's correct or not, you have uh, one side right and left. Uh, no, I shouldn't use I shouldn't use right and left. You just have A and B. A doesn't believe B, and B doesn't believe A, and they're both intelligent, mm -hmm. and they have their own reasons. Well, you can do that the more you know about people, and you can do that with groups. And I think that's what's happened on January sixth. 
Yeah, I, and this is this is off topic, but what you're saying is you don't have to look at a 50-50. How do you divide people down the middle? You know, a fraction of 1% of people, they are gambling addicts. And I heard a report about how Facebook gives people the tools, this big fish casino, to find those people. And when you find those people, you devote all your advertising dollars to them. And these people are like, my dad was on his deathbed. I went into the hospital and I didn't even talk to him. I sat there on my phone playing Big Fish Casino. I lost $15,000 that night. And I was out of money. And they called me and they said, oh, add more money to your account. I said, I don't have any more money. And uh, they said, okay, well, we'll give you $5,000 in coins. And I blew through that. And I took out a wire train, or I took out a cash advance on my credit card and put more in because I needed to keep playing. So they they can identify these people, and there's no mechanism in place to stop that exploitation. So I think, and that's real money. I think that this level of exploitation occurs with tools that were saying, "Oh, just leave it to Facebook. Have them use DM. They'll figure it all out." And it's like, no, like people are being exploited, and and not in the criminal sense. I don't think there's any criminal liability for saying, hey, you should keep gambling. No, I don't want to. Oh, here's some free coins. And then I kept gambling. There's no criminal liability there, but they're facilitating that. Why should we expect them to be the stewards of our money supply? That that doesn't make sense. Just getting back to the article. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree, David. And my thinking goes further than that. I, that's addiction. The mm-hmm. guy had a gambling addiction. But then again, do all of us gamble? Yes, we do. We don't have that level of addiction, but we all have some a spectrum of this this gambling uh, mentality. Uh, and so w- when they know so much about us, they know where we are on that spectrum. They know who we interact with. They know how we spend our money. And they can have us part of a, 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 a cohort that's moving in a direction and they can start edging everyone in this direction and the whole spectrum of addiction mm-hmm. uh, of just to say gambling or or uh, uh, purchasing or buying or just playing games or everyone has a certain type of propensity towards some kind of addiction. Mm-hmm. You know, you say, oh, I don't like that, but I love doing this over here. Well, that's that's not addiction, but there is a spectrum there. And if you know how people think and and act and react, then you can start focusing on a, a if you're really into sports, you're really into soccer or really into baseball or really into football, well, you can have uh, paradigms that have those kinds of logic, those kinds of arguments to move you to make decisions uh, as a group in certain directions. It is creating profiles on mm-hmm. you because they know so much about you. And uh, those models exist out there. Yeah, and, and they're starting to do, they're starting to uh, do that even more. And we saw we've see, we're seeing that we're seeing the results of that over and over again. Uh, and that's separate from from the uh, uh, hacking our systems. This is controlling our people. Yeah, and it's perhaps more um, insidious because it's using the tools that are completely legal. And it's like the first thing right. you do with those tools is let me find the subset of people I can exploit for my own gain. And we've seen that with crypto too, with these altcoin scams. 
oh, I'm going to do a decentralized finance coin. That's You read the tokenomics, and it's a Ponzi scheme. Half of them are, like, you read, this is how it works, and you say to yourself, reading the tokenomics, that seems an awful lot like a Ponzi scheme. And the, the funny thing is people will run off with $10 million, a million dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars on these pump and dump Ponzi schemes. And you're saying, wow, these people are making $10 million. And then you take a look at that, you know, all those Ponzi schemes amount to $100 million, $200 million. That's a lot of money. And you say, wow, we need to pay attention to this $200 million that's getting leveraged from the system. How much money is getting leveraged out of Facebook with people that are addicted to gambling? That's a scheme too. And, and then also, is it important to look at that stuff in considering that it's a $2 trillion market now, cryptocurrency? Is that just an externality that's unfortunate? These people sort of scamming you with altcoins? And that's not the big picture. And so which uh, one, a good point. Which one should you focus on? That's a good point. Yeah. What, where do you go? What do you look at? I actually, if you don't, if you back up, it's just going to get out of hand. It's just going to start snowballing. It's going to get out of hand. And that's kind of what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. But getting back to the article, he says, you know, we have to do something about it. But you got to be careful doing something about it. What does that mean? Yeah. You know, Congress has to do has to act and act now. Yeah. But if you were a congressman, what would you do? Yeah. And. It's, I like, I like his solutions. It's like, well, we need to make sure that people in authoritarian governments can communicate anonymously, but nobody here should be able to. It's like, it sounds like we're the authoritarian government. Um, shall we? We have two more sections and we're running a little long. Shall we continue and conclude? Sure, let's do that. Okay, last section was the illicit trade. I think the illicit trade is more of an externality, like we were talking about with the Facebook and mm-hmm. altcoins. Mm-hmm. I think the real risks come here the threat to the financial system the digital dollar this is where the game really exists now i think that illicit trade is something that people can use to gin up fear it's a good story but i think this digital dollar stuff is where the rubber meets the road in terms of regulation so let's get into it the final category of risks posed by digital currencies is geopolitical Spurred by the growth of private digital currencies and the problem of slow and expensive payments, a majority of the world's major central banks are considering launching sovereign digital currencies, also known as central bank digital currencies. Against this backdrop, the United States must consider the risks to the international role of the dollar if it does not launch its own digital dollar. This danger is often framed too narrowly as a worry that China's digital yuan could threaten the dollar's reserve status. Beijing has made no secret about its desire to increase the share of international payments in yuan at the expense of the dollar. Mu Changchun, the digital currency chief at China's central bank, has spoken publicly about China's desire to reduce dollarization in the international economy. And the Chinese Communist Party certainly values the data and surveillance capabilities of the digital yuan and what it will give to the authoritarian state. Considered alongside its vast infrastructure investment project known as the Belt and Road Initiative, China's ambition to use the digital yuan to project economic power seems clear. 
yet. The United States must weigh Beijing's ambitions against its capabilities. China faces a host of structural disadvantages, including a managed exchange rate and a lack of economic transparency that will make it difficult for its sovereign digital currency to threaten the dollar's reserve status anytime soon. Some will embrace the digital yuan, and others may be induced or forced to use it as a condition of doing business with China, something for which Washington must be prepared to hold Beijing to account. But wary of capital controls and weaker property rights in China, most people will likely think long and hard before ditching the dollar for the digital yuan at a scale that would threaten the dollar's reserve status. Put another way, the real-world factors that have historically constrained China's fiat currency will also constrain its digital currency. A more significant but largely overlooked risk of the digital yuan is that it could help Beijing facilitate sanctions evasion. One way the United States stops weapon sales to North Korea, for instance, is by imposing secondary sanctions that prevent Americans from doing business not just with the North Korean military, but also with any foreign entity that transacts with the North Korean military. Because no bank can afford to lose access to the U.S. financial system, virtually none will facilitate payments for Pyongyang's military purchases. The digital yuan could provide North Korea with a way around the banking system. If a foreign company that does no business in the United States wants to sell a North Korean military entity to a North Korean military entity, both parties could open account with the Chinese central bank and money could flow between them via the central bank without touching any commercial banks, avoiding the bite of U.S. sanctions. Launching a digital dollar would do little to address this threat. Although the United States must be clear-eyed about the risk posed by the digital yuan, in particular that it could undermine U.S. sanctions, the threat to the dollar-based international system is much broader than China. This is what I'm talking about. The threat to the dollar-based system is much broader than China. International payments are notoriously slow and expensive. They flow through a patchwork of different national systems, touching multiple commercial banks in a process that adds cost and time. A new system built with a global economy in mind could clearly improve efficiency, which is one reason so many countries are considering adopting central bank digital currencies. If central banks were to agree to provide foreigners direct account access, adopt common standards, or even share technology, international payments could become more seamless and cost-effective than the current dollar-dependent system, thereby gradually eroding the dollar's international role. Yet, as real as this danger is, the United States should not panic. With the exception of China, most countries are in the early stages of developing central bank digital currencies, and the United States is engaged in international discussions aimed at setting standards for the underlying technology, meaning that it will be able to shape those standards. Moreover, the Federal Reserve is currently exploring possibilities for the technology that would enable a digital dollar, including by working with the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Even if it does not adopt a digital dollar, the United States may be able to bless a private sector currency or currencies that can facilitate low-cost international payments. A properly regulated stablecoin, for instance, might meet the need for efficient dollar transfers, depending on how the international landscape develops. The United States must also consider the domestic policy implications of a digital dollar. Providing the public with direct access to accounts at the Fed could make it easier to integrate the roughly 5% of Americans who are currently unbanked into the country's financial system. But a digital dollar could also raise privacy concerns if the government has insight into individual 
individual spending decisions, or it could lead government over to government overreach if deposits are promised in exchange for conformity with controversial social policies. In addition, Fed accounts could cause banks to lose deposits, diminishing their ability to make loans and hurting economic growth. It will hurt the traditional banking system if the Feds can give you a bank account. There are ways to mitigate these risks, such as using private sector intermediaries that do not share spending information with Washington, limiting what the government can do through Fed accounts, or capping the size of Fed accounts. The United States, however, will have to balance these domestic considerations with the need to ensure that the international dollar transactions are powered by technology that is efficient, resilient, and interoperable with technology being developed by other central banks. This could be achieved through a digital dollar or a properly regulated private sector alternative, such as the stablecoin. But to secure the global role of the dollar, which has for decades provided stability for the United States and its allies, Washington will need to adjust to and shape the global shift towards central bank digital currencies. Wow. You're muted still. Wow is is right. So that's the second to last section. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road. And I think it's fascinating to me Sanctions, which he mentions, and unbanked. All right. If you're part of the 5% of Americans who don't have a bank account, you're not going to shape the geopolitical future of the world. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, if you're 94% of the 95% of Americans that have a bank account... You're not going to shape the geopolitical future of the world. I mean, there's 1% of Americans that will shape the geopolitical future of the world, and they're the richest 1%. But, uh, but this is, it's, it's saying there could be a public good. You could have people that are unbanked be able to be banked. And I think that uh, back in the 50s and 60s, there was something similar to this in the post office. Do you remember this? I'm not sure what you're, what you're getting at. The post office served as a de facto bank for uh, maybe I'm wrong. Postal banking. It's it's what it's called. Let me look it up. Because there's a pilot program now. But uh, the Postal Service used to provide basic financial services. Um, they would provide, they would cash checks for people, and they would allow people to keep savings accounts. Mm. Um, and it was really good for people that were unbanked. Um, now, the Fed, if the Fed did this, it would be even more guaranteed for that, that people, but those people aren't going to affect the financial future. The fascinating thing to me is this convergence to digital. Don't you see that it's going to happen, right? Yeah. And if everyone's digital, why do we need the system that the United States has built at that point? You know, so what's the importance of the dollar in a future system if everything is real time and digital, you know? It's that's the interesting thing. I I see in 25 years the dollar perhaps losing its grip as a reserve currency just because 
a lot of the financial system like that they talk about with the getting around sanctions. Um, people won't defy sanctions because they need access to the financial system and that machinery, those middlemen, that it all runs through the U.S. financial system. Well, if everything goes digital, are we just going to make a copy of the current inefficient system and have it run on dollars? Or will people say, we're building a new system, let's make it more efficient and cut the U.S. out of the game? And I think that's a distinct possibility going forward, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I think that, that that's sort of what they're doing with Ether and Bitcoin, or that was like a bit of the libertarian ethos of those cryptocurrencies. Is let's have a decentralized currency that's completely dollar agnostic. Yeah, you can trade Ether for dollars, but you can also trade in Ether. You can also trade in Bitcoin. It could be a, a new form of currency, mm-hmm. and it's built without any knowledge, or without you know, it's an agnostic of the dollar. And I think that as you realize systems can be built that catch on, these central banks are like, well, we've always been the arbiter of money. Let's make a digital dollar. Let's make a digital yuan. And it's like, but what if these new independent decentralized currencies, like how is that going to help you deal with those? It doesn't seem like it will. It's sort of like trying to digitize the current system. It's trying to say, by 2005, we want the internet to be the Smithsonian library (laughs) available to people's computers. And that's what it's going to be. And it's like, it's going to be more than that. So what you're saying is just digitizing the current system doesn't make a new system. Yes. Digitizing the current system also, I'm sure there's a lot of details involved, but it's difficult to see how digitizing the current system ensures the primacy of the dollar in global financial transactions. It's a very dangerous time for the dollar as the world's reserve currency. And that the implications on that is that if the dollar is not the reserve currency of the world or the global uh, econ- economics, that that's how does that affect uh, the power of the United States? Yes. The political power of the United States, so, and the economic power and the trade power and everything else. So mm-hmm. it's it's, wow, it's a it's a critical time right now. Yeah, and the thing is, obviously, the United States should fight to keep this huge advantage it has over global affairs. But should it fight to preserve it for as long as possible, knowing that eventually it will lose? Do you see what I'm saying? Or should it say, what outcome is inevitable? How do we arrange the system so that once we reach that outcome, we're in a position to sort of be as dominant as possible? Yeah, that the latter is the way you should be thinking. Uh, But I don't think people know what that what the path is, Mm -hmm. what those decisions are. They don't know. Because we don't know how this is going to play out. It's just, wow. Not at all. It's, a, it's, uh, it's fascinating. And it's one of those things. Will you expend too many resources trying to preserve the status quo that you should have spent adapting to the new normal? That's right. Whatever that is. Yes. Because if as you move in that direction of the new normal, you can have some say in what that new normal is going to be. Or at least you'll know what it's going to be 
and so you can you can position yourself to where it's not you're not going to be a big loser. Yeah, I think it's fascinating, don't you? Oh, it really is. And I, I never thought of it too much till till people start till people like this uh, start talking about it who know about it. Mm-hmm. Since you bring up points I didn't even think of. Yeah, and that's not to say there won't be a dollar in twenty five years. It's just that every all roads lead through the dollar in international commerce. You know, almost everything is dollar denominated. Well, what if from 95% of international transactions, that's 75%. Well, the dollar still is hugely important, but it's not completely essential. There's a world where the dollar doesn't need to exist in 25% of global affairs. And that's that's fascinating to me to try to wrap my head around because that hasn't been the case in my lifetime. Right. So it's difficult to imagine what that world looks like. And by the end of my lifetime, hey, it might be, you know, I don't know what it's going to look like. Obviously, it looks a lot different than it did when I was born. You know, it's I think it's it's hugely fascinating to me. And if and if you have 95 percent and you fight to keep the 95 percent, you might lose it all. Yes. Or if you position yourself to say, OK, it's going to be less, but I want to secure I, I, I secure 70 to 80 percent or 85 70 to 80 percent. I want to secure that. That may be the good uh, the future position that's that's secure. Mm-hmm. So you may be shooting yourself in the foot trying to maintain the 90. Yeah. Again, taking the old and trying to digitize the old, it's not going to work. Also, I mean, what's scary is, you know, who is going to be crafting this policy? I'm sure that the U.S. Congress people, and they're not known for their ability to get along and craft great solutions for the American people. I mean, no offense to our congressman, who I think is perfectly fine congressman, but he's working with a group of people that aren't necessarily known for doing their job. You know what, my joke that I tell every election? Uh, Who do you think will win the House? Who do you think will win the Senate? And I say, well, regardless of who wins the House and who wins the Senate, I'm sure they'll all work together to do what's best for the American people. And people laugh, and it's like, that's literally their job. And the Congress is not known right now for doing their job. Um. No. Well, but, we we elect people. Okay, this we got political here. Yeah. We elect people and send them to Congress, and their whole their whole platform is to take down the government. Yeah. Um. So having, I mean, trying to think of, and let me just single out a few Colorado Congress people. These aren't our Congress people. We have we have a good congressman, I think, but uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Do you think she understands cryptocurrencies as well as you or me? Because she's the one voting on legislation that'll shape the future of America. Lauren Boebert from Colorado. Do you think she understands this stuff? Because I don't. I don't think she does. No, um, I don't think. I know she doesn't. Yeah. Um, well, should we finish the article, though? Because we're talking about a path forward. We just said... A path forward. We just said there is no path forward. So let's hear what he says about a path forward. Yeah, what does he have to say? Yeah, let's finish it. Do you want to read or should I read? Okay, I'll I'll finish it. It's short. I'll finish it. A path forward. If digital currencies continue to gain traction, the debate over how to regulate them will only get louder. 
it will only it will not be easy for Washington to find a middle path. Because the digital currencies touch so many policy areas, they cut across the normal decision-making silos of the U.S. government, creating more potential for bureaucratic sticking points and risking an uncoordinated patchwork approach. Within the executive branch, various agencies have a stake in the issue, including the Treasury Department, the SEC, the CFTC, the Federal Reserve, the Justice Department, and the State Department. In Congress, several different committees have an interest in digital currencies, including those on banking, finance, agriculture, and foreign relations. To forge an interagency path forward, the Biden administration should regularly convene a high-level group akin to the President's Working Group on Financial Markets, which includes the Treasury Secretary, the Fed Chair, the SEC Chair, and the CFTC Chair, but add the Attorney General and the Secretary of State or their deputies. Congress could also set up a bipartisan task force to seek consensus across committees. Most Americans want their government to be able to respond to economic downturns, to prevent broad financial instability, and to fight terrorism and other uh, types of crime. But most also wish to benefit from the innovative potential of new technologies such as digital currencies. Both these things can be achieved only with common sense guardrails and ultimately through a digital dollar or a properly regulated private sector alternative. Decisions about the government's control of money must be shaped not just by software developers, but by elected representatives who are accountable to the American people. Wow. That's quite an ending. Yes. And I think he's got a good point here. And I do think reg- regulation does need to start now. Um, because the United States needs to control this thing that's getting bigger and bigger somehow. I think we can point to 1996, the Clinton administration's passage of the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which really helped infrastructure investment, decoupling of uh, bundled services, that type of thing. It allowed for expansion of internet in America, the growth. When Al Gore says he created the internet, a lot of times he'll point to that specific policy, the Telecommunications Act of 1996. Now that was, we want this thing to grow like gangbusters. We're in a much different situation in 2021. How do we control this thing that is growing like gangbusters? And that's That's a much different problem to solve than we want web. We want web here in America. It's 1996. We're going to deregulate a lot of stuff. We're going to provide investment incentives for people to put in fiber optic cable to have internet disseminated across this nation. That That's easy to say, this will have a benefit. We, we know it. Any regulation to sort of try to cool down crypto markets or regulate them may destroy them here or may give someone else an unfair advantage in this newly emerging economy. Um, right. So the path forward is more difficult than it was in 1996, but I think we're at a moment where we need to sort of say, how is this going to work? How is this going to work for us? And that's that's Jason Muzinich's point, and I think it's well taken. He's a deputy secretary of the U.S. Treasury previously. Now he's a fe- uh, distinguished fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. His point is, this is a powerful force in the world, cryptocurrencies. 
digital currencies are a powerful force in the world. It's time for us to start looking at how we're going to interact with them in the next 20 to 30 years. And I think that's that's his point at the end. And I think he's right. And I think at the end also, he's saying the path forward. He's not saying what should be done in cryptocurrencies. It's how should we approach deciding what's to be done in cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. Like he says, Congress also set up a bipartisan task force to seek consensus across committees in Congress. Yes. Fascinating. And he's saying we got to stop this because we are going to lose if we don't start coming together. And if you notice, his prescriptions at the end are, you know, the president's group on financial markets. Financial markets are important to the U.S., but he wants to add the Secretary of State, one of the most right. popular, and the Attorney General, two of the more powerful cabinet members, in addition to the, those that serve on the financial markets uh, right. working group. And I think that's, you cannot under, overstress, you cannot overstress the importance of this issue. And the fact that it, that people at the highest levels need to be talking about it and trying to make decisions about what to do now, because I think that decisions will need to be made soon, and inaction will leave us in the lurch. Um, that's what that's what he's saying from a governmental perspective, and I think he has a point. I think he has a very good point and uh, fascinating point. I think I think he sees it and he's coming out and saying it. Uh, these kind of voices need to be heard. And I think uh, whether you agree with it or you disagree with it, something has to be done and we have to come together uh, to make some very important decisions right now about uh, the economic uh, the economic and the uh, the financial health of this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it's not just the health of the country. It's also how we connect with the world. Yes. Connecting with the world. And I think one thing about the future is that we don't know what's going to happen. But we don't know if the legislation they'll come up with will be the right legislation. But I think it's important for all these people to be aware of what's at stake. And I think if they convene a working group, they'll get closer to that. I think a lot of times you see Congress, they go into committee meetings on tech issues, and it's clear that they're light years behind the people working in the field. Um, They don't really understand how it works. Or, you know, where you stand depends on where you sit. They're upset that Twitter's uh, discriminatory against conservatives. And Jack Dempsey says, you know, Americans represent 3% of our user base. It's like, (laughs) so, I mean... Maybe 1.5% of Twitter is against American because, you know, like, uh, you know, 1% of our users are political. So, like, a congressman will frame it as this is a forum for political debate. And it's actually that's 1% of what the platform is. You know what I mean? And so Congress people will come in and think, how does this affect me? But really, they need to start thinking, how does this affect the country? Because I think it's too complicated for people to understand so it's the type of thing where it's like we need to strike a bipartisan deal because we can't score any points on the evening news about this because people don't understand how it works. So we need to work together and do what's best for America. We need to do our jobs in this one instance. 
Or the last sentence I find along that along that line, these la the last sentence, this decisions about America, uh, decisions about the government's control of money must be shaped not just by software developers, but by elected representatives who are accountable to the American people. Well, we got that. That's that's very very tricky there. The software developers know what's going on. Mm -hmm. They understand this because they're doing it. The elected representatives don't understand what's going on, and the American people are even less knowledgeable <laughs> what's going on. And so you can say that because it's been a buzzword for so long, but then to me I'm thinking the elected representatives must listen to the software developers to stabilize our country to protect the American people. Being accountable to the American people, that's how our country has been built. But you're accountable to the American, what that implies to me is that the American people have to agree with what you're doing. They have to understand what you're doing and they don't understand this. Mm -hmm. So being accountable is protecting them and protecting their livelihood and protecting their future. Uh, you Being accountable to them is protecting them. Okay, and, and being accountable doesn't mean you have them be part of the decision process because they don't understand the issues. Mm -hmm. The elected representatives don't even understand the issues, but they have to create uh, the bipartisan committee. So let's have a consensus and let's pull in the people who understand this to make decisions. When you have people up there making decisions and they really don't understand what's going on, they're going to have this criteria that needs to be considered and they will have something, one criteria that they understand will drive their decision, which undermine good decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's exactly what's happening when you do the nation and the decision process at Congress begins to crumble. We elect, we elect representatives to put them in there because of at home, we believe uh, that one little criteria that they understand. They don't understand what's good for the country. Yeah. We've I, got to be really, really careful how we move forward. We do have to be careful how we move forward. I will say, though, the fact that this is such a difficult to understand issue is, I think, the more important and complicated an issue is, the less important it is for people's reelections, because you can't boil it down into a one-second soundbite. And the more likely it is that people are would be willing to cast aside partisan differences and work together and actually do their jobs. And I think it's fascinating because that's sort of how politics works these days. And I think that the people that will be on these committees that he's sort of singling out, banking, finance, whatever, ways and means, I don't know exactly which ones he said. Um, Justice Department, State Department. Yeah, I'm thinking of the, when he talked about Congress. Um, several banking, finance, agriculture, foreign relations. Yes, finance, agriculture, banking, foreign relations. Um, on those committees, I think that, uh, you know, even if you have some people that are more radical on some of these committees, you might get to a point where they're out of their depth. And they'll go along because they understand that what's being discussed is you're trying to make America better um, through this regulation. And 
it's difficult to score a soundbite win. I think it's fascinating in issues of real importance. The level of complication is so high that for once it might make people actually do their jobs. <laughs> Hopefully. And I don't, I don't know. I, I might be cynical, but when I look at this, the Treasury Department, the SEC, CFTC, Federal Reserve, Justice Department, State Department, and Congress, the banking, finance, agriculture, foreign relations, when I look at those people making decisions there, they understand those areas extremely well. Mm-hmm. Do they really understand software development? Yeah, or cryptocurrency. A cryptocurrency. Or the, the software development of cryptocurrency and social media, do they understand that as well as, uh, as uh, the Googles and the Amazons and the Facebooks? No, they don't. Or as well as Vitalik Buterin, some kid that just invented Ethereum. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't work for Amazon or Facebook or Google. No. That's right. Buterin, why don't you... The people making decisions needs to bring these people in to say, how does this stuff work? Yeah, put, put, put Vitalik Buterin on a task force. <laughs> put him on a task force and see what he says. Yeah. That's exactly right. He developed this. And how old is he now? He's in his 20s. He's he? in his 20s. Yeah, let me look. I'll, I'll take a look before we should wrap up soon because we're going long. But yeah, this is an interesting conversation. So no biggie. Um, well, Vitalik Buterin's 27 now. Yeah. If... When did he develop Ethereum, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Ethereum? Uh, I believe... 19 or 20 or something? Um, 2014. So that would have been... Seven years ago. He so was he would, have been, he would have been 19, yeah. Or 20. As far as I'm concerned, you should have teenagers on this thing. that are that, People like that. Intelligence knows no age. They may not have the experience but they have the intelligence and they're smart enough to realize that, oh yeah, this is, these are big issues and bring them in for crying out loud. Cause they know how this stuff works. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that Vitalik Buterin understands how cryptocurrency works far more than any member of Congress. Exactly. Um, and he does not understand maybe at all how Congress works, but if you're making legislation, in areas that you don't understand, bring in people who do understand it, mm -hmm. and you come together. That's what committees are for. Yep. Committees are not to, to be in sexual relationships to where you just uh, satisfy each other. You bring in the people who know what's going on. I don't know. It is a fascinating time. Mm -hmm. And this has the, 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 the technology era, uh, era is uh -huh. really changing how everything is being done. Yep. We need to think about it. I just put up a picture of Vitalik Buterin. I just he he invented ether. You know, it's like yeah. yeah. He's well, there's uh, a lot of other people out there too that yes, do it too. There's a lot of experts, but he's one that you can point to. That's like this guy knows about cryptocurrency. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's safe he's to say the, he knows about cryptocurrency. Yeah, and he doesn't necessarily going to shape policy, but he's going to inform the policymakers on how this stuff works. Mm -hmm. And, and when they say things, they'll go, no, that's not true. It's going to work this way. There's nobody at the table and those I, I'm, I'm willing to I'm willing to believe, willing to state all the treasure, all the things that I mentioned at the government. Mm -hmm. There's no one at the table who understands it as much as Buterin does. Yeah. Well, obviously, I mean, and the thing is, it's like, this is a new world. And they may say, that doesn't jive with how we make laws. And it's like, well, it better because it's coming.
You know, you have to sort of, you have to, um, you can't just sort of put a square peg in a round hole. Your hole is going to end up looking like an octagon or something because, um, I don't know, you know, the, the future's coming. How are we going to deal with it? That's what this article is about. That's my, my final two cents is he's saying he wants government, the American people, and... Uh, governments around the world to have a role in the future of money. He doesn't want it to be decentralized. And so in order to do that, they need to assert their authority now before they don't have a chance to in the future. And I agree with that um, as, you know, based upon his premises, I think that he's he's right. How Whether or not that regulation will be good or bad, it remains to be seen because it has, doesn't exist yet. So that's that's what I'm taking from this article. What about you? But uh, Let's wrap up and you can say your tagline. I'll play the music. Okay, well, I think what he's saying is important, has to be thought out, and it's not easy. We're in a new era, and it's complicated, but we have to come together and talk and understand what people are saying. And that's what we say here at the Sons of Sequoia podcast, keep on talking. But listen more than you talk and understand what everybody is trying to say. That's right. And so this concludes episode number. What episode number is this? Do you know? 125. 125, a buck and a quarter, uh, America's Crypto Conundrum <laughs> by Justin Muzinich, episode 125 of the Sons of Sequoia podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Please tune in. We're live Tuesdays and Thursdays on YouTube at 9 a.m. Mountain Time. We'll catch you guys in the next one. Yep. Bye. Bye.